This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. Well, hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Whale, with Rob and Mob, or Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Mob, and welcome to the 48th episode of Shenandoah 40, Down Under. 48th? Well, I think there's three weeks... To, it's, it's October the 14th is our recording day today, which means that there's about, oh, three or four weeks until November the 8th. Uh, that's it's about three and a half weeks. So I, I think we might get up to 51 episodes, so there you go, and... Um, as many episodes as I have years of age. Well, there you go, Rob. I believe you're a bit younger than me, Michael. Uh, so. Yes, well, I'll be getting close to, uh, close, <laughs> to the, close to that next week. But we'll get on to uh, that no, no, sorry, is it? Yes, that's right. Michael's, Michael's birthday is October the 25th. So, Michael, how old are you going to be? Um, <clears throat> I am going to be um, 39 for the 12th time. <laughs> Uh, does that mean that you're turning 50 on, on Sunday well week, be. Michael? Yes. Your, your 50th birthday. It, oh, it look. could very well be, yes. Oh, so we might even be doing our 50th episode very close to my 50th birthday. So there you go. Don't, look, don't, don't worry about turning 50. It's just you know, your body falls apart. It's all downhill from there, but that's okay. Otherwise, it's great. Uh, otherwise, it's great. Yes, well, yeah. Anyway, so uh, Shenandoah. The Shenandoah last week had uh, gone past the Falkland Islands. The captain yep. had sent a bottle of champagne to celebrate to the crew to uh, celebrate the fact they had gone around the world, which uh, a number of the officers churlishly got up from the wardroom table and left the room. I, th- I think very churlishly. If you can't celebrate travelling around the world, what what are you going to celebrate? Yes, that's a very, very unhappy ship. And if you remember last week, I left with a bit of a spoiler for this week's episode, which was... A very, uh, a very uh, demanding letter from uh, Mr. McNulty, the surgeon, yes. to Mr. Whittle, the executive officer, demanding satisfaction. Oh no, no, we, we, we're going to have to see how this develops because I think it. Well, I think it it starts badly, gets worse, and uh, you know. And then actually is a bit of a fizzle. Oh, well, well, well. So now now to get back to our other other surgeon, uh, Surgeon Lining. Um, So when we finished up, uh, Lining gave a very, very long description of the feud, the feud of the feud of the Falklands, let's call it. But on Tuesday, October the 3rd, 1865, returning to normal, but still one can see that there is not the same cordiality that there used to be nor the same gaiety in the mess. So obviously it used to be a very gay mess. Sorry, I couldn't help myself with that one. <laughs> Puzzles and games are now the rage. I, I wish, wish you said what games? I mean, blind man's buff, charades, you know, statues. I mean, it would, it would be lovely to know, lovely to know. So uh, Wednesday, October the 4th, 1865. Calm and pleasant, smooth sea. Puzzle still popular. Puzzle? Puzzle okay. still popular. Partial eclipse of the moon, 8 to 10 p.m. Friday, October the 6th, 1865. Still pleasant weather. Had a long talk with Whittle about the future. 
His situation is really, I think, the most to be pitied of any on board on account of his family. And yes. of course, uh, that's because, yes, most of Whittle's family are in the um, the Confederate Army and uh, he has some worries Navy, about the yes. Navy. And, 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 uh, yes, he, he does make a couple of comments in his journal about how he's worried that they actually don't have enough to eat. Yes. And, of course, he laments the fact that he probably won't be able to marry his dear Patty now because, you know, he is a... Uh, a renegade and uh, won't be able to return to his homeland. So yes, his his, his journal entries are full of uh, those tales oh. of woe, shall we say? Well, th- there are further tales of woe. Sunday, October the eighth, eighteen sixty-five. Scurvy aboard. Two have it now, and I would not be surprised if more took it before we reached port. Yes, uh, Whittle talks about that. He says that it's a truly disgusting and terrible complaint that is painful, disagreeable, and very often most terribly fatal. And uh, apparently uh, scurvy is something that will also happen if a crew is depressed and miserable as well. It's sort of the Uh psychosomatic aspects to it too. Oh, there you go. It just sort of helps make it uh, get worse and worse. Depressed? The crew of the shit are daft? Oh, dear. Monday, October the 9th, 1865... One year since leaving England on the laurel. What changes to us all in the last year? What will I do now? Nothing but hard work to look forward to. Another case of scurvy reported. Well, you could go and treat your, your scurvy case, uh, Surgeon Lighting. Uh, you could maybe do that. Yeah. Well, now, we, had, um, we had some real problems that are going on in the ship. There seems to be thievery going on. Oh. Mr. Alcott, the sailmaker, found that someone had forced his chest open and taken out a pair of opera glasses. Now, there's a whole lot of questions that need answering there as to what is Mr. Alcott doing with a pair of opera glasses in the first place? Um, but at least they're, they're doing games and puzzles, not light operetta to amuse themselves. <laughs> so, so if they were, then there'd be a reason for the opera glasses. Um... And he does a huge search, Mr. Whittle, to see if he can uh, find where these opera glasses have gone, you know, looking in uh, all the men's bags, but uh, couldn't find them. And at the same time, Dr. McNulty got on what is described here as one of his periodical drunks and was so abusive to some that he got reported to him, and then by order of the captain, he was confined to his quarters. And again... This shows this this comment that he that Whittle makes. He is a poor unfortunate whom I have great pity on account of his weakness. Mm. Uh, once again, shows that um, an officer is accorded very different uh, respect mm. than, mm. say, a crewman. Because if a crewman had been found drunk, then Whittle would have uh, triced triced him in a second. Triced him, gagged him, or done something else creative without uh, hesitation. But because it's an officer. Uh, Mr. McNulty, oh, sorry, Dr. McNulty gets sent off to his cabin and relieved. Um, but I, I thought he'd been relieved permanently from duty some time ago, mate. Oh, I think they, they bring him back. And, and uh, the, the next day, the captain told him to go and uh, relieve Dr. McNulty from suspension if he was sober. Yes. Which he did so. And the captain then went and had a chat with McNulty. Oh. And McNulty claims that he wasn't actually drunk the day before. And that his language to Mr. Blacker was caused by Mr. Blacker 
saying abusive things about the captain, and yeah, he was so oh, outraged and offended oh, oh. that uh, he he acted the way he did. And of course, Whittle then got uh, several other officers to come and. and sorry, sorry, and, sorry, let me get yes, No, he was no, really drunk. He was absolutely, you know, three sheets of the wind, and. Mr. Blacker, of course, swore blind that, uh, you know, he wasn't bad-mouthing the captain. Um, and, oh, by the way, it doesn't... It, it says here... It, do, it doesn't say in the original story, but it says here that not only was he drunk, he drew his pistol in, in his drunken tirade. And, uh, anyway, so, we've got the issue that uh, Dr. McNulty... He's drunk in charge of a pistol. Drunk in charge of a pistol, draws his pistol, is, is shouting abusive language, and is uh, relieved of his duty. Now, now we, we do have a report from Surgeon Lining as to actually what that abusive language was. Oh, uh, and oh, you've got to remember that the, the, the blacker, the um, who he had, the, uh, the they're both Irishmen. Okay, so Tuesday, October tenth, eighteen sixty-five, Doctor Nen McNulty must go and get drunk again and get into a row with Blacker, calling him an English-Irish Orangeman. An English-Irish Orangeman. An insult no Irishman can stand if it brings in religion, politics, and the deadly feud. Oh, it's a triple threat. You really cannot... Possibly unless, you know, you, you also defame the Irishman's mother in the same sentence. You probably actually can't get a worse insult than that. Uh, Blacker reported it to the first lieutenant who went to see McNulty, who pulled out a pistol on him, Whittle, telling him to stand back, sir. But Whittle wrenched the pistol from him. Where did he get his liquor? That, that, that's a paragraph with a whole... That, I, I, I remember what you once saying to me um, that the sound of music has got everything in it. It's got nuns, it's got Nazis, it's got tanks. Uh, singing, know, dancing. Singing, dancing, it's got absolutely yes. everything. Well, all all that paragraph, that's got Irishmen, it's drunk Irishmen, uh, pistols. Uh, where did he give liquor? That, that, that's an amazing, amazing paragraph. But does Whittle mention that he had to wrestle a pistol of a drunk Irishman? Um, all he says is that... Uh... McNulty showed his pistol to him. And McNulty is basically claiming that he showed it to him. <laughs> like <laughs> said, here's my pistol, I'm drunk and we're having an argument. Isn't yes. it pretty? Yes. So this is actually what the uh the, the oh, duel is the, about. Yes, okay. Because okay. McNulty is uh you know, rather annoyed. McNulty uh McNulty is so offended, not by the fact that he was caught drunk and intoxicated or got his pistol out or whatever, but that, in fact, he is accused of lying about the story, about Mr Blacker saying bad things about the captain. Oh, okay, okay. And that, you know, he took such great offence that that's why he got so angry. So that's what the, uh, that's what the fight is about, the fact that he lied. Okay. So this is this is the letter that was sent, and I, I read this in last week's episode. Uh, Lieutenant Lee delivers it, and he's the only one apparently that Whittle is not on good terms with in his mess. And it was, Sir, I demand an explanation and withdrawal of the language you applied to me in the presence of Lieutenant Scales last evening. Should the demand appear extravagant, such other satisfaction as is looked for between gentlemen is expected at your earliest convenience. 
Lieutenant Lee will bring me your reply, signed Frederick J. McNulty. Um, so, interestingly... That, that, I, I knew that there was a, a threatened duel coming up, but I have to say, and Whittle, I, I, you know, you'd have to be in, in, in the top five that you'd pick, but I did not pick that, that, that Surgeon McNulty would be oh, the, yes. the other offended party, I well, have to say. interestingly, uh, Whittle calls on Dr. Lining, the other... Doctor Surgeon. on board yes. to act as his friend. In other words, his second, and he agreed. And uh, he also uh, agreed uh, with Lieutenant Lee that this is a matter that could not be settled on board ship because gentlemen yes. do not duel uh, while they're at their duties and on no. board ship. No, no. So of course it had to be done uh, when they get to the to the nearest port. So this is the reply that Whittle sends to oh, my Mr. McNulty. Goodness. Uh, so this is at sea, October the twelfth, eighteen sixty-five, and it's to Doctor F. J. McNulty, Sir. I have to acknowledge the receipt of your note of this morning through Lieutenant Lee. My language to you on last evening in the presence of Lieutenant Scales explained itself. <laughs> <laughs> there is no apology. <laughs> Under the circumstances, I have but to accede to your demand for such satisfaction as you desire, as the ship is not a place where such things can be settled. As soon as we get on shore, full satisfaction will be given to you. Mm. Wow. Mm. Mm. So them's fighting words. Oh, they are indeed fighting words. Um, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, the the uh, the manuscript of the lining diary that uh, that I have um, is excerpts from the lining uh, from the from the diary. It doesn't have everything in it. Um, and on Wednesday, October 11, eighteen sixty-five, passed quite near an English bark who had a flag on the quarter deck, all prepared to hoist. But upon seeing the Shenandoah making no preparations to return the gesture the bark passed on because of course they are the ship with no flag so mm. they can't actually raise a flag and then there's some um, yeah, parentheses journal entry contains more about the McNulty Blacker dispute well that's probably the bit where where where, where Lining agrees to be the friend of, of, of yes. Lieutenant Whittle but I, I, I think really you're getting to one of those interesting parts of the entire it's voyage as far as it's been it's exactly it's been expurgated maybe there were some rude words or something well, like that well fortunately Whittle does talk a little bit more and he okay. says that uh, I have always been opposed to duelling but I have been given an insult and really think that he that, that McNulty did tell a lie I must give him satisfaction and will meet him. I may have been wrong in not keeping my opinion that he had lied to myself, but I could not do it, and I will give him satisfaction, any satisfaction he may require in the fighting line. I think that Dr. McNulty's conduct is very discreditable. His statement about the origin of the quarrel between Mr. Blacker and himself was a fabrication. Oh. It was used to induce the captain to think that his trouble was caused by taking his part. And then, the very next day, his entry is, we have lost our trades in light variable airs and light rain. The weather is very hot. <laughs> so obviously, he has put that aside and is moving on. I have to say, I think if I was Lieutenant Whittle, um, the prospect of fighting a duel with a, a, a drug Irish assistant surgeon probably would probably not go to fill you with, uh, you know, with uh, with trepidation. Because uh, unlike uh, that other very famous uh, Irish surgeon, um, uh, Stephen Maturin in the um, the Aubrey Maturin novels, and of course um, 
Maturin is, is a deadly shot with a pistol, and he's the very last person you want to get into a duel yes, with. Yes, he has been out, as yes. it's been described. Uh, yes. They had a different meaning in those days. <laughs> he has been out many times, yes. I believe. Yes. 30 I, times, I think it is. I, I think so. I, there's one of the early books where you know he says, how often did you used to go out? And he said, oh, not more than 12th, you know, not more than once a month. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, I don't think Mc, Mc, Mr. McNult, uh, Sergeant McNulty is, is of that ilk. So, um, my goodness, we've got... Well, if we bring it up to today's date, uh, another very useful thing has happened, and there's been a very uh, big storm... Yes. ...which is good because it enabled them to catch some drinking water. Oh, okay. Yes, of course, they would do that, I believe. um... If you remember last week, and uh, we were talking about how they were beginning to run out of water. Yes, although drinking drinking water is good, but it will do nothing for their scurvy situation. Um, Yes. Well, they could uh, alleviate that by, you know, from uh, getting some vegetables or some uh, lime juice from passing ships, but of course they're, they're not willing to do that. They, they? they are more than loath to do that. Also on that entry for the 14th of October, he does talk about how uh, there are many, many great sails in sight, and he says, and I'm sure he wrote this with a great sigh, if we were as we used to be, we would be running every which way to catch a prize. Oh, Dear, uh, dear. Obviously, catching prizes is just very hard to give up. Once you do it a few times, you know. Yes. So. Probably like heroin. Well, look, look. Uh, just, just to say that, just when you think things can't get any worse, they generally do. Uh, I'm just going to go a, a couple of days ahead to, um, to poor old Doctor Lining's entry on Monday, October the sixteenth, eighteen sixty-five. Hot, sultry, little wind. The Great Mogul in a Bad Humour, I, I think that might be Captain Waddell, mm-hmm. um, and suddenly passes some orders to try and make us more uncomfortable, viz that we cannot sit on the weather side of the quarter deck even at night, nor on the rail of a ship. That's that's just insane. This, yeah, this would have well, been... they're not allowed to smoke there, we know that, because that was banned earlier on, wasn't it? That this would have been right in a regular man of war... But as things are, I think it very ridiculous. Found bed bugs in my bed. Put alcohol all over the bed. So, yeah, just... Things are just going from bad to worse. They are just going from bad to worse. But, um, look, what can we say that, that at least on Monday, you know, October the 16th or you know, October the 14th, that the voyage is... Is, is coming to an end. There's, there's only three or four weeks to go, so well, what terrible things can happen in, in, in the rest of the voyage? Oh, well, we we will find out. So We shall. We shall, we shall indeed. Um, well, look, things, things are moving on so so quickly. I mean, last week we were in the Falklands and, um, yeah. And now it's actually raining and hot. Oh, but I believe, Rob, you actually said that I, uh, I did. a couple of I weeks did. ago you were going to tell us exactly how you can measure the height of an iceberg. Well, we better get on to that because... Uh, because the, icebergs, the, the are, icebergs are floating behind yes. quite a bit away. Because, uh, yes, I think that last week they were in um, uh, longitude 41, so they're, they're, they're getting out of, the, out of the roaring 40s. Um, and now they're actually up at... Uh, uh, oh, they're at latitude 9... They're at nine degrees north. Okay, okay. So, so, th- th- so you better start talking about <laughs> icebergs. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, right? uh, okay, okay. So, uh, how do you tell the height of an iceberg using a sextant on board a ship? 
Please tell us. <laughs> okay. Now, a few weeks ago, um, we read in uh, Cornelius Hunt's memoirs, which were written uh, shortly after the end of the war, that uh, when the Shenandoah went around uh, Cape Horn, they saw lots of icebergs, including, I think, 14 in one day. And they estimated, by use of the sextant, that um, the height of the tallest iceberg, one that Cornelius Hunt said looked wonderfully like a cathedral, to be 320 feet. Now, the sextant is used to measure the uh, angle of celestial objects, uh, so stars, presumably the moon, the sun. Um, so basically, it, it, it's an angle measurer. But uh, it can also, obviously, uh, measure the angle of something that is uh, on land, say a tree, or in this case, uh, at sea, an iceberg. But here you come uh, to a, a problem. Um, I did have a look uh, on Wikipedia for um, how do you measure the height of an iceberg using a sextant, because I thought that that would be a, um, a useful a useful thing to do. And I got onto a site called SIPEX, which is the Sea Ice Physics and Ecosystem Experiment. And there they've got uh, uh, a very good thing. How big is an iceberg? Uh, when sailing through Antarctic waters, we see many icebergs of all shapes and sizes. How it's very difficult to figure out how big they are just by looking at them. In order to get a more accurate estimation, we use a combination of a sextant, the ship's radar, and some simple math to calculate the height of the iceberg above the water. So you use the sextant uh, to get the angle. Um, you use the ship's radar to find out how far away the, the angle is. And that then gives you um, the distance to the base of the object and the angle, and then you can use trigonometry to work out um, how how far, how high the object is. And you could also obviously do this on land, uh, where you can pace out the distance between you and a building, then measure the angle to the top of the building, and then do your trigonometry. Now, the thing is, however, on the Shenandoah, um, they did not have radar back in 1865, so they would not have been able to use their radar to measure how far away the base of the iceberg was. And I also doubt very much that anybody would really have wanted to take the ship um, very, very close to an iceberg so that you would then know how far away you were. Now, I did another search and found uh, on Google Books the USS Grimmel, US Grinnell Expedition in Search of Sir John Franklin which uh, certainly visited uh, the Arctic. And um, on uh, page 108 of that, uh, of that book, uh, the icebergs were very numerous. I counted 208 within the horizon, and the inshore or glacier face was quite choked with grounded masses, the more recent product of this great manufactory. Mr Griffin, who visited one of those impacted in the flow, estimated its height by the fall of a bullet and a second's watch at 380 feet. Now, of course, uh, the problem with this as a way of estimating uh, the height of an iceberg is that you, in fact, have to climb to the top of the iceberg or the, the wall of ice and drop a bullet off it and then, yeah count how long it takes that bullet to drop. So again, I think there's no indication that they uh, that they did that on the on the Shannon. So with a little bit of more research, um, I managed to find MathsStackExchange.com had um, a, a, an article on how do you measure 
the height of an object when you actually don't know how far away you are from the object. And I think this must have been the method that they used on the Shenandoah because the thing that they did know on the Shenandoah is that they knew how fast they were going. So you would probably have had to wait until the ship was going in a straight line and uh, you have had to know that... um, uh, you know, the speed, and you probably have to do it at a time when the wind was fairly constant, but what you would do, you would get your sextant as you passed your iceberg at a safe distance. You would take your observation of the angle between the deck and uh, the top of the um, the iceberg, probably allowing for the height of the deck above the water. Um, so anyway, so, so but then, then you go down to your log line, you work out, say, when you go another nautical mile, and then you take another observation and you get another reading of uh, the new angle between the deck of the Shenandoah and the top of the iceberg. And this, of course, means that you have got um, the height, uh, you, you have got part of a distance and an angle, and you've got another angle with an estimated distance. I... Won't, won't bore you with the details, but um, you will get a pair of simultaneous equations. So you'll have two linear equations with two unknowns, pretty easy to solve. Um, I'll, I'll yeah, leave the, the working out of the details uh, to uh, to anybody who's interested. But um, so that that does make it quite uh, quite feasible to uh, estimate the distance using um, your sine, cos, and tan that uh, some of us uh, remember to differing degrees of uh, accuracy from uh, you know, uh, from our, our school days. So that is uh, the way that you can estimate the height of an object uh, such as a well a mountain or a um, an iceberg or even a spurious black butt tree because if you remember we were talking at that time about the height of the mountain ash, the spurious black butt uh, which is uh, is found in Victoria. Um, and again, when I, when I was looking looking at this, because uh, quite a lot of the this tree estimation is, is done by loggers, and a very good well rule of arm, as it were, uh, given by that is obviously if you're cutting down a tree, you'd like to know that it's not going to fall down and you know break your house or something like that. So apparently, a quite good me- method of estimating the height of a tree is to get a stick as long as your arm. It does have to be as long as your arm. And then you hold your arm out straight at eye level and you hold up your stick as long as your arm and that obviously will create two sides of a um, of a right angle triangle. If you then walk backwards from the tree at the point when the top of the stick that you are holding is, um, uh, is at the top, is visibly to your sight at the top of the tree, that is where the top of the tree will fall if you cut it down. So, so there you go. I personally at that point would probably go back a few more steps just to make sure, but apparently loggers and presumably loggers of spurious blackbutt trees have been using that for a very long time. And, um, and some of them survive doing it. Well, um, very impressive, Rob. <laughs> okay. uh, not very useful for the Shenandoah at this point, given they're up near the equator. But oh, okay. But, okay. You know, if they ever had to do another circumnavigation, they they know what to do. Well, that was great. That was uh, another episode of Shenandoah Down Under. In fact, episode forty-eight. Yes, we're getting very, very close to the the fiftieth and the fifty-first episode. So yes, this has been. Um, Another episode of Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. Um, I was Rob.
And I am still mob. Tally ho and ahoy. Timber.